It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Escape the ordinary with Green and Black's Organic Chocolate, sponsor of the Women's Podcast. A rich, intense chocolate to savour. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. I just saw there on Twitter that Jenny Murray did her last Woman's Hour, the BBC Woman's Hour, and we had her on the podcast not too long ago about her new book. She's such a legend in broadcasting. I've listened to her for years and... I even managed not to faint from the nerves when she interviewed myself and my friend Natasha Fennell about our book, The Daughterhood on Woman's Hour. Uh, She really was a groundbreaking journalist and broadcaster and we send her all the best from the women's podcast as she steps down from that really incredible role. I also just want to mention a colleague as well who's stepping down uh, from the Irish Times, Orna Mulcahy, who sadly this week had her final day at the paper. Orna was a former editor of the Irish Times magazine and she's worked across the paper in all departments in property and business and more recently she edited the hugely popular home and design supplement. She's also a fantastic writer and some of you will remember her brilliant always entertaining columns in the paper. Orna contributed in such a stellar way to the growth of the Irish Times over the past few decades and she was always a huge font of ideas and innovation and someone who I know personally, uh, I can say this from experience, offered the best advice and was also brilliant fun. So we'll miss her and it's sad in these Covid times that we can't give her a proper send off. We have a tradition in the newspaper business when someone leaves that we give them what's called a knockdown in respect and admiration for them. It's just basically banging the table with whatever you can get your hands on like this. And so that's my mini knockdown for Orna Mulcahy because she didn't get that in real life. But I'm doing my own mini one here at the desk and I hope I get to see her in real life soon. Thank you very much for everything Orna Mulcahy. In other news, I want to send a big congratulations to another Irish Times colleague, Deirdre Falvey, who wrote a wonderful article recently about something I consider a human rights issue. The fact that many girls and young women in Ireland are forced to wear skirts at school and not given the choice to wear trousers. And as a direct consequence of her article, at least one school in the country and possibly others that we don't know about yet are offering the choice of trousers to their students. And I really hope other schools around the country follow suit. So if you have any influence in the school area at all, it's something really worth getting behind because obviously loads of people want to wear skirts, but there are some who would prefer to wear trousers. And surely in this day and age, young girls and young women should have the choice. And finally, we are very excited that our first big night in is happening in a few days on Saturday night, 7 to 8 p.m. on Zoom. And if you haven't got your tickets, you better fix that by going to irishtimes.com forward slash 
big hyphen night hyphen in or check out our Instagram page or our Twitter account at IT Women's Podcast for all the details. We can't wait to talk to Senator Eileen Flynn in front of a live audience on Zoom on Saturday night. And you know that we've got loads of other great women like Catla Moran, Claire Byrne, Mary Cassidy, the former state pathologist. It's a great season of the big night in and it continues every second Saturday night until December 12th. But now to today's episode, we were delighted to welcome back my co-host Cathy Sheridan, who spoke to writer Emily Hurricane about her new book, The Glorious Guinness Girls. Emily was born in Belfast, but grew up in Brussels. And she spent a few years in Dublin too, before settling here for good after going to UCD. I don't remember the move really from Belfast to Dublin. I remember the first move from Dublin to Brussels, I remember the move from Brussels back to Dublin, which I didn't particularly like. I wasn't all that happy moving. I then was very happy to go back to Brussels. But then there was always the suggestion that we would move again. There was lots of talk about we'll move back. And all those years where you're a teenager and, you know, you desperately wish to remain embedded like a little snail in your little gang of friends... You know, the fear of moving was on me an awful lot. There would be talk of it and I would just think, God, no, please, no, 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 no. She's written five novels and her latest delves into the privileged world of the Guinness girls who are the granddaughters of the first Earl of Ivy and who were the toast of Dublin and London. The book is set in the Irish Civil War and 1920s London and it's a fictional look at one of the most fabulous family dynasties. She spoke to Cathy about all of that and about her experience with mouth cancer. She's coming up to five years since her diagnosis and she told Cathy she found the illness and treatment really tough and that she wouldn't wish it on her worst enemy. Well, here she is, the very brilliant Emily Hurricane. Emily, good morning. Good morning. finished your book about literally 15 minutes ago. And sometimes, as you know, we all scan books before we interview people and we try and get to the end of them. But I actually really wanted to get to the end of yours. I'm so glad. It is a very interesting book from so many points of view. And I think we'll start with, it's called The Glorious Guinness Girls. So let's start with who The Glorious Guinness Girls were and how they, and if no one who's listening to has ever heard of them, uh, how they're related to Arthur Guinness of the Pint fame. So they are the great granddaughters of Arthur Guinness. So the Glorious Guinness Girls are Eileen, Maureen and Una Guinness. And they are the daughters of Ernest Guinness, who was Arthur Ernest Guinness, But in fact, he went by Ernest mostly and he was a grandson of Arthur Guinness and his daughter. So he only had three children, all girls, and they were born. So the oldest of them, Eileen, was born in 1904 and she died in 1999. So between the three of them, they pretty much span the whole of the 1900s. Uh, They were born and brought up in Ireland as children And then they moved over to London for their kind of, you know, the comings out, which was what the gently born daughters of well-off men did in those days. They came out, which means that they were kind of launched into society. And what's really interesting, Emily, and how you paint, you have a narrator who is who is a young girl who was brought into the family from from a from a. I'm not sure a distant cousin, maybe, who has fallen on hard times. Yeah. And she brilliantly has brought in the narrator and she almost doesn't belong in either world. 
But you also have this sense of three girls who are living in this gilded cage. And it's a picture of eras changing with such rapidity, but yet these three girls utterly insulated from the Civil War, from the 29 crash, all of these things. I can absolutely see what drew you to them. But were you were you surprised by some of what you read as you went on? I was surprised by a lot of it. So I knew the bare basics. I mean, I probably knew quite a bit more than the bare basics, really, of the three Guinness girls before I started writing the book. I knew the factual outlines of their stories. I would have known more about the later parts of their lives um, from kind of 1935 onwards, there was much more digging and investigating to be done in the early parts of their lives. But what interested me was, firstly, I was fascinated to find just how much of our history they lived through. I mean, I don't know, you're probably better at the idea of history than I am. But even though I studied history for my BA, it kind of existed in my mind as this sort of thing that happened in its own cordoned off world, that's history. And then when you start looking at the life story of, you know, people, just people, you realise that those people lived in history. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but that was the kind of sense I had. When I read, there was a detail I read about, so they grew up in this house in Dublin in Castlenock called Glenmaroon, which in fact was two houses. There was North House and South House and there was a bridge between the two of them. And this footbridge was the place that the girls stood and watched in 1922 as the forecourts were burnt during the Civil War. They could see that from their house. And I remember reading that and just going, oh my God, that's so fascinating. Here are these girls who were very young at the time. They were kind of 14, 15, 16. But that's a fact, Emily, is it? That's a fact. I mean, you know. That they actually stood on that bridge and watched the flashes and that, got shot. Yes, that, now, that is a fact that appears in a couple of different, kind of in passing almost as a detail, in a couple of different books about the Guinness family and those girls who appear in the books. There's nothing... You know, there are no biographies specifically of the three of them. But as part of general family biographies of the Guinnesses, they obviously appear. That's a detail that crops up in a couple of them. So I remember reading that and going, how unbelievably interesting to be a child with the concerns of a child, of a girl of that age, which I would bet you 100 million quid are not really concerns of civil war, rights, wrongs, treaty, anti-treaty. They're the concerns of any child, really, or, you know, girl on the cusp of growing into a young woman. And yet there they are watching this happening. So that interested me, this notion of how much of their lives happened against a backdrop of what we call history. And also then the exact thing that you mentioned I was so fascinated and I still am by the fact that they kind of came of age at this kind of fork in the road for women. So after World War I in the UK, so much changed for women because, I mean, economic forces demanded that while their men were out fighting, they were in Flanders fighting and dying in World War I, 
Women were in factories. They were doing the jobs, manufacturing, that men would have done. And that changed everything. So that after the First World War, there was this rapidly shifting social climate for women in the UK predominantly, but trickling into Ireland a little bit as well. There were all of these new possibilities, these new expectations, these new anticipations that women had. And within that, I feel that the Guinness girls were this madly anachronistic trio who were 100% devoted to parties, social life, peering in newspapers, who they're going to marry. They couldn't have given a fig about women's liberation. As far as I can see, I cannot find any evidence to suggest that they got involved on any level with the move for women's liberation. Because, Emily, they were bred to be beautiful and amusing. Exactly. I mean, and they was were there rich. ever anything so useless? Yeah. Beautiful, amusing and useless. And in a way, those are the roles that they just carried on through their lives. They were wives. They were mothers. They were muses. They were patrons. They were hostesses. All of those things are really important. But what they weren't was active, creative forces in their own lives. And I think probably the fact that they had so much money insulated them, really. I mean, in a way, if you're mega rich, the realities of anybody's life don't really touch you. Yeah. Um, what is real and what's not? It just struck me while reading it, Emily. I just, I sort of, I had to go to the back very quickly to see if Fliss was real, for example, the narrator. I had to check out if Huey was real, who, who becomes an important, if, if almost absent character for most of the book. How does that work when you're researching it? And how does it work, for example, when you're, you're weaving in a character like Thomas, who I discovered at the end in, in your, in your afterwards, actually is based on a real character, the son of a man who was killed in the civil war, not the civil war before that. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, that story fascinated me when I found it. I just couldn't not have put in a character based on this true person, Seamus Mallon, whose father, Michael, was one of the men of 1916 who was killed when I discovered that Seamus's aunts, he had these two aunts, Lily and I can't remember the other one's name, Tulis, who were later very active in Cumann the Mon. They lived down the road from the house, Glen Maroon, in Castle Knock. And discovering then that Seamus was born the same year as Eileen Guinness, that his aunts lived down the road, I just couldn't not put him in. I wouldn't have felt comfortable putting him in as a real person. So I created a character very closely based on him. So Thomas in my book isn't a real person, but he is very closely based on what I could find out about Seamus, who then um, he was interred for a while after the Civil War. And then he went away to Venezuela. I believe he then later came back much, much later in life. But he, you know, he had to go on the run, basically. He had to scarper because he was on the losing side of the Civil War. Um, as for what, I mean, so I've woven in an awful lot of actual facts, of things that are real. And the reason I created Fliss, who's the narrator of the book, is because I wanted, firstly, I wanted the freedom of somebody who wasn't real. I wanted the freedom of somebody who I made up to do things that 
weren't factual things. I needed her to be able to, you know, kind of move in ways that I dictated rather than actual fact dictated. But also what I really wanted was somebody who could arrive into the lives of the Guinness girls, which she does when she's 11. And indeed, she's from an impoverished Anglo-Irish family. Her father went to fight in World War I and died. And she is one of two children. There's an older brother who will obviously inherit what little scrap of falling down house there is to inherit. Fliss won't get anything. There's nothing for her. There's no real option to be married because she has no money. She's got no position. There's no real education for her. So she's sent to live with the Guinness girls and she's roughly the same age as them. And the point of her is that she can see their lives in a way that they can't. You know, they've grown up with all of this wealth and privilege. They cannot, they don't have the frame of reference to realise how unbelievably lavish their lives are. So I wanted somebody who wasn't from their background, who could literally come in and see with our eyes, see with the eyes of the reader, all of the things that these girls have and their emerging personalities in a way that they can't see themselves. So that was the point of Fliss. So Fliss is made up and her brother is made up. Um, and a couple of other characters are made up, but an awful lot of those characters are based on real people. So they are, you know, the Guinness girls are real. Their parents are real. Um, a lot of the bright young people who they meet in the 1920s are also real. So Nancy Mitford puts in an appearance and there's their cousin, Brian Guinness, who married Diana Mitford. Uh, they're all real people as well, obviously. I mean, look, these are my versions of real people. You know, I, I, I have invented the thoughts in their head um, tied as closely as I could manage to the things I know and have read and have researched about their personalities. But, you know, they are, you know, they're, they're, they are my versions of real people, I guess. So before we talk about the actual lives, the extraordinarily lavish lives of the Guinness girls, the fact of the Anglo-Irishness, Emily, that a lot of people have only a vague notion of, and which again you explain in those terrific afterwards at the end of the book where you set everything in historical context. The Anglo-Irishness is strange. It's a very strange world where they flit between London and Glenmaroon. The lavishness remains the same. The same butler travels with them and all that sort of thing. Um, what was it like to be that person, a kind of citizen of nowhere, you know, who, who lived in Ireland, but who regarded themselves as Irish, but whose cultures and reference points were, were all English? Fascinating, isn't it? I think so. It's Elizabeth Bowen who said that she felt so. she's you know, one of the better known or best known of many of the very well-known Anglo-Irish writers. She is born a little bit before the Guinness girls, slightly older than them. But she said that it was a question of feeling Irish in England, feeling English in Ireland. Um, Brendan Behan said that, you know, asked who and what the Anglo-Irish were. His definition was a Protestant with a horse. So in a way, you know, because there were lots of Protestant people in Ireland who were not Anglo-Irish. They were leading the same working class or middle class lives as anybody else. But then there was this ascendancy class who were landowners. They were culturally, so they lived in Ireland. Their lands and their houses were in Ireland. And yet their frame of cultural reference 
was far more attuned to England. They mostly sent their sons to be educated in England. They did service for the British Empire. An awful lot of them would have gone to India. Many more of them were active in British politics. So they were this strange kind of hybrid of people who lived here and yet who looked to England for almost everything that they considered interesting and important. Um, and then there was, you know, I mean, they weren't all rich by any stretch stretch of the imagination. You know, that's kind of a fallacy that we think, oh, well, all the Anglo-Irish were loaded. I mean, they weren't. The reality was that large numbers of them had houses they couldn't afford. These huge, the big houses that were then, you know, burnt an awful lot of them because they were symbolic of the British rule of Ireland. And these houses were burnt by the IRA. Um, but a lot of those houses were very far from lavish. You know, they were hopelessly expensive to keep up. And the land around them wasn't sufficient, generally, to really provide an income. So yes, there were some very, very well-off Anglo-Irish families. And then there were an awful lot of impoverished Anglo-Irish families, like the family of Fliss in the book, who you know I created based on the knowledge that I had of these, you know, these kind of crumbling houses. I mean, there are amazing descriptions in, um, I'm thinking, so one of my favourite of those Anglo-Irish writers is Molly Keane, who is beyond a genius. They're, her book, Good Behaviour, is one of my all-time favourites. Her first book, it's called The Night of Cheerful Countenance, which is a novel, but it really isn't. I mean, it is so hugely and massively based on her own upbringing and her own life. And to the point where it's kind of, you know, that it's, it's kind of like a primary historical document of the lives of these people and the details of the freezing cold nurseries, the appalling food, the damp. There was a bit in that that I borrowed from the book that she talks about. So this dripping ceiling in the nursery, which had a piece of string tied to the ceiling to encourage the drops to kind of flow down the string and land in a chamber pot underneath. So it's a way of containing the leak and kind of, you know, allowing it to end up in one place rather than in a puddle on the floor. I mean, I just, I thought it was so amazing. So there's this illusion of lavishness in the big house with the many rooms and all the land and the great big gates that you go through. And the day-to-day -day reality is cold and wet and damp. Um, you know, a lot of those children would have been pretty And sick. that was Fliss's background yes. until she was handed over to the Guinness family. Yeah. In what was quite interesting um, a way. But getting back to the Guinnesses, Emily, I mean, here we're talking about places like, first of all, Glenmaroon, Lottrellstown, Lugalaw. I mean, and these places were not just kept up on a, on a, on a, on a, on a small um, budget. These, all these places. Tell us more about the Guinness lifestyle back then. So the Guinnesses, the thing to remember about the Guinnesses is they were massively wealthy. I mean, they were wealthy well beyond the income of lands. This was the only real industrial wealth in Ireland at the time. They were, I mean, I don't, I haven't done the reckoning in modern terms of how much money they have. I know that each of the three girls was on their marriage, their first marriages. They were all given a settlement of one million pounds as it was then, which as far as I can work out, 
translates to about 64 million now. But that wasn't the end of it. That was what they got for being married. This is your prize. Here you go. Here's your gift for getting married. But they also were the beneficiaries of the Guinness Trust, separately to that. So there was money coming from many different sources in very large quantities. So they had the kind of wealth that honestly, genuinely, my mind boggles at. I am not good at computing that kind of money. But I'm pretty certain of one thing. It insulates you from everything. It allows you to do everything. The story of their kind of, you know, progression from, for example, London back to Ireland. And they did come back. Even when they moved to London, they'd come back for summers. They'd come back for the horse show. And it sounds like a royal progress, basically, of them being handed from, you know, private coach with their own butler, with, you know, food cooked by a chef of, you know, exquisite quality, handed on to a boat or a yacht, transported over, travelling then to their own houses, uh, where everything would be laid out, ready and waiting for them. And there would, I mean, the upkeep of the houses, so they were running a house that was never shut down, really. I mean, Glenmaroon, even when they weren't there, was still functioning as a house that required, you know, many servants, daily kind of cleaning and interaction. And then the same in London. So the house they lived in in London, in Grosvenor Place, is now the Irish Embassy. So that was their London house. And their father, Ernest, he had two brothers. He was the middle of three brothers. The oldest one also had a house on Grosvenor Place and the youngest one had a house of his own on Grosvenor Place. So there were these three Guinness establishments in Grosvenor Place. And again, all of... Opposite Buckingham Palace. Yeah, looking onto the walls of Buckingham Palace. Exactly. There are these kind of, you know, the yellowy, ochre-coloured brick walls of the palace gardens and the house right there beside them so that you can almost, when you're in those rooms, as I have been, because the embassy very kindly let me visit and showed me around, you can almost see into the palace from there. Um, So, I mean, the wealth... The wealth is a huge part of it. This enormous amount of money that, as you say, insulated them from, firstly, the historical friction around them in Ireland, then the reality of post-World War I London, which was beginning to be a time of great social upheaval. There was the general strike. There were these wildcat strikes. There were miners coming out. And all of that then kind of took this massive nosedive with the great crash of 1929. And again, that did not affect them hugely. You know, lots of their friends were ruined by it and they continued to sail on in their absolute magnificence. Now, Emily, what you do really well through the eyes of Fliss is distinguishing between the different characters of the sisters. Um, So uh, to tell us, I mean, Maureen is the absolute out and out star uh, in, 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 in social terms. But begin with Eileen, the eldest, and tell us about her. OK. Uh, and thank you for saying that. That's incredibly kind of you and makes me feel very happy because I hoped I had. And, you know, whether I did or not is not for me to judge. It's for the reader to judge. So I'm really thrilled that you would say that. Um, Eileen always struck me as the most aloof of the three of them. So she is, she's very elegant She's very kind of socially adept 
person without the incredible mischief and what later became downright rudeness of Maureen, but also without the great sweetness that Una had. So I found them in what I read and what I heard and the people that I spoke to about them, they seemed to me to have very distinctive personalities with Eileen as, you know, this kind of quieter in herself person, more aloof, possibly. Um, she seemed to me to be content to inhabit the life that she inhabited. Now, Emily, just tell us about her. She, she I was kind of fascinated that she got Luttrell's town for, a, for, her, for, her, for her wedding present and also as her new marital home. Yes. Um, and the fact that she moved back to Ireland at that point, that, that she yes. chose that to be her home is interesting. Well, I, my feeling is that she preferred to be the leader of a smaller social circle in Ireland than to be a kind of a, you know, follower or one of a crowd in a much bigger and more vibrant social circle in, in, in London. I may be completely wrong about that, but that was the impression I got. So she was given Luttrellstown because she married... Uh, Brinsley Sheridan, who was a younger son. So he came to the marriage without property. So she brought property with her because that was obviously easily done. No big deal for her. So they bought Luttrellstein Castle, which is a small enough castle. You know, it's, it's, is it 14 bedrooms? It's not a massive Ashford Castle-y kind of thing. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a manageable castle size. Um, and they settled down and they had two daughters. Well, they had three daughters, one of whom died tragically very young. Um, and they had, so it was very much a party house, a party castle. There was like a discotheque in the basement and there were lots of Luttrellstown parties. They seemed to be mostly horsey slash motoring kind of parties. So there were parties for the, you know, the horse show, race meetings, hunt balls, motor race meetings that Brinsley was was interested in. And Emily, they would have continued up to what period? What are we talking? When would they have? So this went right on through. So she got married in 1927. Um, she was the first of them to be married. Um, and then she was still having those parties right up until, you know, the kind of 70s and 80s. And um, there was a period she left. So she spent the years of the Second World War in America. But then she came back and the parties continued. Um, you know, lots of jet setty, slightly Euro trashy kind of people went to her parties. There were lots of kind of Hollywood movie stars. That was her kind of scene. I mean, this long story about Douglas Fairbanks meeting the woman who he then subsequently left his wife for and married a woman called Sylvia, who was like an underwear model. And then they divorced. I think she later married Sean Connery, but I need to check that. Um, you know, there was, there was lots of that kind of stuff that went on. Um, and so that was Eileen and she was, she didn't. And, and did Eileen just, because I'm kind of hoping there's a part two to this novel because. Oh, what, there's a part because two. There is. Yeah, I'm writing it at the moment. Well, that is actually great news because I was going to say, hey, this kind of stopped. You kind of, you kind of sum yeah. up very briefly at the end yes. how they, 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 they all did get married in, in, in your time frame in this novel. But I was actually anxious to know what happened next. So I won't ask you any more then about what happens afterwards, but let's get to Maureen. 
this okay. shimmering star. Okay, let's because Maureen is just so fascinating. What I will say is that they all they married eight times between them. So Una had three husbands, Eileen had two husbands, and Maureen had three husbands. Um, so there is, yes, there's there's plenty more to come in book two. And in book two, you'll also see more of the evolution of Maureen. So I love Maureen. I adore Maureen. For me, she is just the most magnetic of the three of them. She turned into a, pretty much a monster by the sounds of it in her later life. She became a grotesque snob, a kind of, you know, a very rude and abrasive person and um, addicted to really scatological practical jokes to do with toilets and you know, she had a fake nose shaped like a penis. Eileen loved the practical jokes as well, like bowls of fake vomit and stuff. They both were really into them. Um, but Maureen became very, very rude and cutting and snobby. She was obsessed with royalty, in particular the Queen Mother. Um, but I think all the way through kept this quite mesmerising personality, the sheer energy, the electric energy of her, seems to have been really compelling. And remind us, Emily, who she married. Her first husband was. So the first husband was the Marquis of Dufferin and Ava. So Basil Blackwood is her first husband. She married him while his father was still alive. And then his father died a week after their marriage um, in a plane crash. So he inherited the title and the estate, which is Clanderboy, which is in County Down, um, uh, almost immediately. But when they married, he was Basil Blackwood. He was the Earl of Ava. And he was himself a really fascinating person. Like, a, like I'm looking forward to really getting my teeth into him in the second book, where obviously there's much more about him. He was one of the brightest of his generation at Eton and at Oxford. He was, so John Betjeman, the English, the poet laureate, was a contemporary and a friend of his at Oxford and was mad about him. I mean, absolutely mad about him. He seemed to love him very, very deeply. Um, you know, he loved his brilliant mind. I think his amazing sense of humour, his incredible charisma. So he's a fascinating person who died very, very young. He died in World War II. Um, he died right beside the city of Ava by, you know, the kind of strange quirk of fate, which is where his title had originated from. Um, I sound like an insane snob obsessed with everybody's titles. I'm not. No, no, it's, it's really interesting because they needed that. That was, that was one of their main aims and one of the great missions they were born to, to yeah. proceed with, really, wasn't it? Yeah, I but mean, that was their it, job, basically. So to that marry was a happy well. marriage, was it? It was a tempestuous marriage. I think there was a really great deal of love in that marriage. I think there was a lot of passion in it. Um, I think there was also, I mean, there's a story of him cutting up all her clothes. I think that there was a lot of frustration. They were both massive personalities. Um, and I think neither of them was easy to live with, but definitely a lot of passion. And so Maureen in the first book, in a way I am slightly charting the progression of who is the person who turns into an insane snob who's the model for Dame Edna Average? So Maureen Guinness is the person who Barry Humphreys looked at and based Dame Edna Average on. 
So you kind of look at that later reality of a person and you go, well, nobody's born like that. Nobody is that person at the age of 10 or even 12 or 15, probably not at 20. So how does that person become created? And so the Maureen in, in this first book of the Glorious Guinness Girls is not a monster. She's super bright. She's very funny. She has a great deal of energy. She's got a caustic wit. She doesn't, you know, kind of sit around and like listening to people moaning. She's a very energetic person who takes control of her own life. She also has an enormous amount of fun. I think much more than the other two did. I think she loved being Maureen Guinness. Uh, so she's not a monster in the first book. Emily, let's move on to Una, because I yes. want to talk about you as well. But yeah. let's, let's deal with Una, who actually ended up in Lugala, or that ended up being her lovely place. That's right. Uh, so firstly, her first husband was Philip Kindersley, and he, they remained in London for that first marriage. She was, so she's the youngest of the three she was the sweetest and she was the gentlest and she was the most maternal of the three girls. And she seems to have been genuinely a very, very sweet and kind person who adored children. And the great tragedy for Una is that she lost a lot of children. Her, I mean, three of her children died, um, which is an enormous tragedy. So she began married, she began married life with Philip Kindersley. She then divorced him and she married Dominic, Lord Arnmore and Brown. And that was when she moved back to Ireland. They lived in Castle McGarrett, which is in County Mayo. And then they divorced. And then she moved to Lugalaw, which had been a gift to her on her wedding. Same as Eileen got the gift of the house. She got the gift of the house. So Lugalaw, again, very, very beautiful house. Small. I think that one is seven bedrooms. Um, but she, too, had these many years at Lugalaw, which were these kind of mad party years in the kind of 40s, 50s and 60s in particular. And her scene was much more artistic and bohemian than Eileen's. So, for example, Brendan Behan was, you know, a visitor. Lord Gowrie was a visitor. She liked writers. She liked poets. She liked artists. She was a very, it seems, generous and gracious hostess who... You know, she had these parties that ran on for days. People would fall asleep on a sofa and just get up and have a Bloody Mary and do it all again. Um, and Una kind of, you know, she seems to, have me, to me to have kind of progressed quite lightly through all of this. You know, she kind of let them at it. And who were her, who were her children, Emily? Some, some of their names may ring a bell with people now. So she had two children with her first husband. She had Gay, who lived a long and fruitful life. She had Tessa, who very tragically died at 14. She died after a routine injection for diphtheria. She took an allergic reaction and she died. And that's immensely tragic. Um, then in her second marriage, she had Gareth de Brune, who only recently died. So he was the great kind of champion of traditional Irish music and craft. And he started Clouder Records and... Then she had a baby who died after just two or three days and was never named, just Baby Brown is the name on the headstone. Then she had a son called Tara, who was one of these incredibly magnetic young men. There's an amazing book about him by Paul Howard. Um, he was the inspiration behind the Beatles song, I Heard the News Today, Oh Boy, and that's about his death. 
because Tara also died. That was the third of Una's children. He died when he was 21. He died in a car accident in London. He had been this kind of incredible 60s it boy who was just the kind of spirit of the time. Again, he didn't exactly create anything, but he was kind of everything of the music, the fashion, the kind of, you know, the heartbeat, the cultural heartbeat of the 1960s. Um, and he seems to have been an amazing. And still all the money was there, Emily. The, the, the money was still coursing around through these families. Lots of money. Lots of money, but less gradually dwindling because it seems as if Una spent a very great deal of money. And then at a certain stage in her life, her third marriage, she married a man who seemed to spend even more the money than she did. She married, um, oh my God, I mean, the story of him deserves a book in itself. Cuban dress designer who turned out not to be who he said he was. He was actually someone totally different who took the name from a friend's dead brother who died in the Spanish Civil War. Una married him believing he was somebody that he wasn't, but he went through a whole heap of her money before she also divorced him. So the money did begin to dwindle for her and also for Eileen, I think Maureen did better with her money, but Eileen and Una seem to have spent very recklessly. You are listening to The Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Chocolate to savour. Right, Emily, I mean, it's amazing why this hasn't been done before, because these really are... I set to thinking I knew a bit about these women and now I know a bit more about them and I'm delighted to hear you writing another book. But tell me, tell me a bit about your own background because your own, you were born in Belfast, grew up in Brussels. You're not, you're not your average D4 writer, you know, obsessed with them, the aristocracy or whatever. Tell us a bit about your own background. So, I mean, yeah. Born in Belfast, um, where my, so my dad was a reporter. He was reporting on the Northern Irish Troubles. So I was born in 1971, um, you know, pretty much at the height of the Troubles in Belfast. I have an older brother who was born in London and then my sister, well, there are six of us, but the sister nearest to me followed very promptly. Uh, 11 months after me, along came Bridget, still in Belfast, so at a certain stage, my mother had, God, was it four children under four or something? I mean, you know, so many women did in those days. And we lived in Belfast until, I think, 1973. And then we moved to Dublin. So we came to Dublin for about two years or so, maybe. And then maybe three years. In 1976, we moved to Brussels. So my dad, who had been a reporter, Liam Harrican, was then working for the European Union in the 1970s. And we went over to Brussels and we lived there. So we lived there for four years. Then we came back over to Ireland for a year. I did a year in Sign Hill. And then we went back to Brussels after about a year or 18 months here. And I stayed there for the rest of my schooling then until I was 17 and leaving school. And Emily, is there anything in that biography that, that, that gave you a certain insight into what it's like to move between different countries? I guess so. I mean, we didn't move in the way that, you know, some, I mean, diplomatic families, for example, that's a lot more moving. Um, we didn't move like that, but we did. I mean, I don't remember the move really from Belfast to Dublin. I remember the first move from Dublin to Brussels. 
I remember the move from Brussels back to Dublin, which I didn't particularly like. I wasn't all that happy moving. I then was very happy to go back to Brussels. But then there was always the suggestion that we would move again. There was lots of talk about we'll move back. And all those years where you're a teenager and, you know, you desperately wish to remain embedded like a little snail in your little gang of friends, you know, the fear of moving was on me an awful lot. There would be talk of it and I would just think, God, no, please, no, 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 no. Um, then when I was, when I'd finished school, I was, I was ready to move back. I wanted to come back to Dublin. We'd always grown up believing that Dublin was home and Dublin was where we were all headed eventually. But that move was quite traumatic. So coming back here at the age of, you know, I think I was 17 or 18 when I went into UCD um, for my first year. And that was hard. Dublin was so different in those days to Brussels. It's probably not that different now, but this was 1990, 1991. And it seemed to me for those first months that I came back, it seemed quite a grim place. It seemed, you know, much kind of darker than Brussels. It seemed much harder to get a drink in a pub because I didn't, I was not, I don't think I was even 18 then and I certainly didn't look it and nobody would let me in anywhere and everything just seemed like such a hassle. You know, you could never get a taxi. You couldn't get in anywhere because everywhere was overcrowded and they turned you out. Brussels in comparison had been a very simple, easy, lovely, and for a teenager, exciting kind of time. I loved Brussels. I still do. But you chose UCD all the same. Did you choose that or was that chosen for you? No, it was, it was, so, I mean, I, being, by dint of being completely and utterly useless at anything that has numbers in it, my choice of what to study was pretty much made for me. I mean, it was English and it was history and, you know, it could have been variations thereof, politics, etc., but it was basically always something that was going to need to be studied through English rather than stay and study in Brussels. Um, my French wouldn't have been, it would have been very good, but not good enough. And anyway, if you want to do English and history. So it was then basically a choice between England and Ireland. And there was no choice. I mean, there was really no question, but it was going to be Ireland. And my parents had met in UCD. So they had these amazing stories, which we grew up on and which I loved of arriving in UCD, my dad from Roscommon, my mother from East Africa of all places, and finding each other and finding their group of friends and finding the things that they were so interested in in UCD. I mean, it's just, UCD was like a kind of, you know, it was like almost a person in our lives. We heard so much about it. The reality when I encountered it seemed to me to be vastly different, but there you go. <laughs> And Emily, you then set about writing. I mean, you, 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 this isn't your first rodeo, as they say. Um, it's not my first rodeo, no. Um, well, I started, so journalism was where I went first. And again, I'd say that was hugely influenced by my dad, even though he was a far more serious journalist than I have ever been. Um, but he used to talk about his days in Belfast and his time with RTE in Dublin, with so much passion, the excitement of it, the interest he had in it. I could tell just how much he loved it. It always seemed like a brilliant career. And then his friends, like so many journalists, would come over to Brussels because obviously they were reporting on, you know, things happening in Europe. Um, 
and they'd come to the house and they'd stay or they'd come for parties. And they just always seemed like so much fun. I loved them. They were so kind of intelligent to talk to and they were good fun to talk to. And I just, I loved the way they seemed to lead their lives. So journalism was a kind of obvious one for me. It was just the thing that I always saw myself doing. But then I also always saw myself writing books as well. But I took a long, like I was a long time coming to that. Like this is my fifth novel. It's my fifth novel in five years. So, you know, I only really started this five years ago. And Emily, can can we talk about something that has been almost defined your life? Many people would say, well, you know, you got married. You have, what, three children? I do, yeah. You have, so that's very important, obviously. You've written five novels in five years, but you've also had this extraordinary, painful cancer journey in, in, in those same years. It's that very hard to f- figure out from this distance how you managed all that. Tell us a little bit about, about um, your cancer, your illness. Um, absolutely. Always happy to talk about that. Two reasons. One, because I heartily encourage anybody who has any strange anything, whether it be a lump they can't explain or, you know, no matter what you think of it, go and get it checked out because what you hope is that the doctor goes, there is absolutely nothing wrong with you and you feel like a little bit of a hypochondriac because the alternative is that you don't go and the thing that you have isn't nothing and it then turns into something much worse. So I had the thing that I had um, so about five years ago now because I am coming up to my five-year milestone from diagnosis, which is a really good place to be. Um, What I had was like a weird lump at the back of my throat, which wasn't sore, didn't particularly discommode me in any real way, except I could feel it there and I could feel it more and more. So first of all, I only felt it when I was breathing heavily, if I was running or something. And then after a couple of weeks, I could kind of feel it all the time. And I thought it was nothing. I was 100% certain that it was nothing and I was doing nothing about it and I was waiting for it to go away and... Then I told my brother about it one day and I don't even know why I told him because, you know, I just kind of went, oh, yeah, I've got this weird lump. And he is a much more sensible person than I am. Uh, He's my older brother and he was immediately adamant that I had to go to a doctor. So I did go to my GP then and I kind of went around the houses. I went to see somebody about my thyroid and like I went to the wrong people for a couple of months And all the time, this stupid lump was still there and still annoying me. And my brother going, do you know what that is yet? And me going, no, I don't. It's fine. And him going, no, it's not fine. You need an answer. So eventually I saw the right person. I saw an ENT consultant who put a scope down my throat, basically, and was able to see then what no one else, you couldn't see it just by looking in my mouth. It was too far down. And it was, in fact, a cancerous tumor at the base of my tongue. So it was mouth cancer. Um, I mean, I'd never expected to get any kind of cancer, but if I had, I probably would have thought, you know, breast cancer seems reasonably likely as opposed to utterly unlikely. So mouth cancer was like, what? Like it just didn't make any sense at all. It continued not making sense for weeks in which, you know, they pieced together different aspects of how much cancer you have, what type of cancer. 
There are lots of things they need to find out before they diagnose it. And right the way through me thinking, this is just ridiculous. Somebody's going to turn around one of these days and go, I'm so sorry, we've made a terrible mistake. Obviously, you don't have cancer. Except, you know, nobody did because I did have cancer. And so then I had treatment for it, which was very, very short and very, very unpleasant. It was six weeks of treatment. It was daily radiotherapy um, and it was weekly drug transfusion. So instead of chemo, I got a different kind of an immunotherapy drug, it's called. Um, They made me a mask, like a really nasty, horrible, savagely uncomfortable mesh mask that I would have to wear for the radiotherapy sessions. So they put me in the mask and they bolt the mask onto the table so that I was unable to move even, and that's the point of it, that you cannot move even by a fraction of an inch. And I would lie there every day and, you know, everyone would quit the room and they'd be behind this massive radioactive proof door and I'd be on the wrong side of it getting the the radiotherapy. Um, I mean, it was horrible. It really was awful. I think, Emily, importantly uh, is the, is, is, is what caused this cancer, yeah. which is something that we've talked about a lot in recent times, but actually really, yeah. I think, is really important in this case. Well, 100%. The thing that caused the cancer is a virus. It is the HPV virus, the human papilloma virus. It's the same virus that causes cervical cancer. It's the virus that we now vaccinate children against in their first year in secondary school. My middle son, my middle child, my second son, will be getting that vaccination tomorrow. And it's something that I believe in enormously. Having had the cancer, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. I would not. It was really horrible. It is now preventable. I hope, you know, that nobody will be getting this cancer anymore in 10 years time uh, because there is now the possibility of inoculating against that virus and it is the virus that causes the cancer so yeah that is really important the hpv virus get the vaccination or certainly do your research do your proper research for anybody listening look to the most credible sources you can find and research it and look at getting the vaccine well emily i am absolutely awestruck by what you've accomplished in the past five years um, I, I'm sort of familiar through a close family member with that kind of treatment that involves the mask and everything. And I really, really take my hat off to you that you managed to write five Thank novels, you. continue to rear your children, stay married, as far as I know. Um, yeah, yes. so far. <laughs> Which is a feat in itself quite often. Yes, um, completely and, agree. Although, actually, I have to say, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't, you know, he is the primary creator of all the conditions that make it possible for me to do any of the things that you've mentioned, which, lest anybody think, makes me sound, you know, in any way like a functional human being, are done largely, you know, like up against a deadline, often with a great deal of ill humour and, you know, by dint of not having much of a social life. And, you know, I mean, something has to give. Nobody is super anything. And certainly I am not super anything. Well, sounds like you are, and he sounds great. Emily, I look forward enormously to the next book, but in the meantime, this is the Glorious Guinness Girls, and I have it here beside me. It's published by Hachette? That's right, yes. 
Uh, and it's out now. <laughs> it's out now. That's correct. Emily Harrigan, thank you so much for talking to the Women's Podcast. Thank you for talking to me. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks to Emily Hurricane and Cathy Sheridan. And the glorious Guinness Girls is out now. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.